Well, good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to the book of Revelation. And we will be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to remind us of, of one thing. And that is that most of these seven churches have some serious problems, don't they? Now, they're not apostate churches. What I mean is they haven't denied Christ outrightly. They aren't rejecting the gospel. They aren't rejecting scripture. But they aren't taking things as seriously as they ought to be. And because they aren't taking these things serious, they are in danger of denying Christ or rejecting the gospel or rejecting the scriptures. And the reason I point this out is because these two chapters remind us that the church isn't as often uh, as healthy as we would expect or hope it to be. And, uh, and I'm talking about the true church. You know, five of these seven churches have serious sins that need to be dealt with. They had to repent, but there was still room for repentance. They weren't cast out. They were at least in some way because of the people who were in them, true churches. They were weak and in danger and some on the verge of apostasy, but they were still lampstands. Remember in chapter 1, lampstands in the presence of Christ. And I point this out because it helps us to know how to, how to think about and pray for the, for the church. And by that I mean all of the other groups meeting in Christ's name this morning. How do you pray for a church that tolerates sin? How do you think about a church that is compromising? How do you pray for a church that's lost their first love or has weak theology or doesn't even think it matters? Christ gives us the example here. We are to pray for their repentance. And if the opportunity presents itself, to labor for that repentance. You know, we know that Christ will not tolerate these kinds of things forever. He makes that abundantly clear. Our concern has to be His concern. And it's that the wayward church be brought back. The Lord will deal with them in time. Our focus ought to be on their repentance and their restoration. And that helps us to navigate the, the confusion and sin in the church today. It helps us to think about, you know, how should we think about these things? How should we pray about these things? Pray that the Lord would give clarity, grant repentance, bring restoration. And so we'll continue this morning to look at just that, a wayward church, starting with the church at Sardis. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, where would we be had you just left us aimless in this world? But you have given us your word as a light, as a, as a light that guides our path, as the truth that cuts through the confusion. Lord, concrete that, that founds us and gives us stability in a world where there seems to be no stability at all. You've saved us, Lord, from having to endure so much of the chaos around us. And you do it by your word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would write the truth of your word on our hearts this morning so that we would know it better. And in knowing it, know you. That you would strengthen your people, God, for the glory of your name and for our good. Lord, help us to hear. Help me to preach. And let your Son be glorified as is appropriate in all of our hearts. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church at Sardis was a church that was dying. But it wasn't dying in any of the ways you might expect. The congregation wasn't growing old. Persecution wasn't driving people away. They weren't cold and lifeless and loveless like the Ephesians. They actually had a, a reputation for being alive. In Sardis, they may have been the liveliest organization in the city. And yet when Christ addresses them, He warns them, you're not alive. You're dead. Which is why He introduces Himself as the one who has the seven spirits. Now that's not seven distinct spirits. That means, if you remember in Hebrew, the word seven means perfect often. And it means He has the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit, the life-giving spirit. If you remember in Genesis 2, God blows the breath of life into man and He becomes a living being. Well, that word breath is the same Hebrew word as spirit. And the Spirit gives life. And so the, the, the picture here is Christ comes to a dead church with life, the life-giving Spirit, in His hands. The problem is, the church at Sardis, it doesn't look very dead. In fact, it looks very much alive. It has a reputation for being alive. They think they are alive. And there is a kind of self-satisfied pride that blinds them from seeing the true condition of the church. And you say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a reputation for being alive but be dead? Well, it looks like a lot of activity. It looks like confident leadership. A lot of people proud to be part of the organization. They're all doing something but nothing of spiritual value actually happens, ever. And there's, there's not an outright denial of the faith. There's not open idolatry. There's no blatant immorality. There's no real false teaching or compromises. Not really. But there is a forgetting that happens. They're forgetting what the main thing is. And having forgotten, they begin to focus on foolishness. 
Do you want an example of this? Look no further than many of the, uh, of the church growth movement churches. Uh, thankfully, they're starting to fall out of style now, but they were the way of the future just a, a decade ago. And most of them, most of them started out well. They had good intentions. They did. But in their zeal, they lost sight of the more important things. And they went astray and they became lethargic toward Christ and they became addicted to activity and in doing so confused the two. Now I remember, <clears throat> I remember there was a church that I knew of and the church was incredibly active in the community. Always doing something, always some act of service being carried out. Their Sunday mornings were, were lively, lots of people, lots of activity, lots going on, lots of praise. Well, when Easter came around, like any other church, they were going to celebrate. And in order to attract as many people as they possibly could to come and celebrate with them, they devised a scheme and, and started an advertising campaign to promote it. And it was all over social media, all over the town, high production value. And so I decided I'll check it out. I was curious, so I, I clicked on the ad. And after watching the ad, I thought, you know, if I didn't know anything about Easter at all before watching this, not only would I still not know what Easter was about, but I would really think that it has something to do with bacon. Because that was the only thing emphasized in this advertisement. We are having bacon, bacon galore. It's a, it's a huge Easter breakfast. Everyone is invited. There'll be pancakes and eggs and bacon and it's such a time. And then it ended, you know, uh, did we mention there would be bacon kind of thing. And they do this every Easter. Well, now, to be fair to this church, I went back and I listened to their most recent sun, uh, Easter Sunday sermon. And look, there, there wasn't anything really wrong. The gospel was presented clearly. Christ was presented as the only way of salvation. He warned that the wages of sin is death. And even though all of these things were said, the emphasis wasn't quite right. And it ended, even though everything he said was correct, he never quite said enough. And it ended with the application being our ability to overcome our earthly challenges because Christ was raised and we can have hope and our best life now in Christ. And it was so close and yet so far off. This is not an isolated incident, is it? It's the whole tone and character of this particular kind of church so close and yet so far always in the community always doing good good communicator on stage full on Sunday mornings but when it comes to actual spirituality there, there's nothing and I imagine this is what was happening at Sardis and you can probably think of a few other places that you know of which have succumbed to this there's no scandals there's no blatant false teaching, not bad doctrine and no good doctrine either. You know, any, anything that is good that is said is completely undone by a, a terrible application or a wrong emphasis, and in the end, it's just nothing. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard uh, about a famous physics professor who's, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he had a PhD student giving his, his uh, uh, presentation, a very important presentation, and the student was very confident, and at the end, they asked this uh, this professor, was it good? 
And he answered and said, it wasn't even bad. <laughs> and what he meant was, it was nothing. It was a waste of time. The student got up and spoke for a half hour and didn't say anything. For one reason or another, churches fall into this, where they have all kinds of programs and activity, all kinds of excitement, but they don't actually say or do anything. In the sight of men and in their own estimation, it's a splendid church, a lot going on, lots to do, but in the sight of God, dead, spiritually dead. And what's so lethal about this is all of that activity can so easily be mistaken for life. But activity is not vitality. A chicken can run around without a head and a, a church can dash about without a heart. It's not a sign of life. You can't take the pulse of a church based on how energetic they are. It can happen to churches. It can happen to Christians. You have so much activity. You're doing this and going there and doing that, helping these people, doing this service, that service. And yet in it all, the soul may be on the verge of collapse. And you don't even know it. It's so easy to mistake activity for real life. But real, vital Christianity, it comes from, well, it comes from time spent with Christ who holds the spirit of life in his hands. Christ is our life, and no amount of activity can substitute for that. Time in the Word, time in prayer, time under the preaching of the Word, time praising God. All of our activity, all of our good deeds, all of it should flow from that, not replace it and not be a substitute for it. Christ alone is our life, and apart from Him, no matter how much we do, we're dead, even if we're doing good things. And those things are good things to do very often, but they're controlled and motivated by love for Christ. And so the Lord warns this church and those who follow in its path to repent and to strengthen what remains. Remember what they've heard. Remember the faith once for all delivered to the saints and go back to Christ. Don't go on animating the spiritual corpse. Keep Christ the main thing. Return to the gospel in a life of simple obedience. And if not, verse 3, Jesus says, I will come like a thief in the night. You know not when. And this is a quote from Matthew 24. It's in Luke's gospel as well, but it, it also bears a special significance for the church at Sardis. Sardis was the capital city uh, of an ancient kingdom called the kingdom of, of Lydia. And being the capital, Sardis was a, a great fortress city. And by the way, Sardis was home to some famous writers and kings throughout history, like uh, Croesus or Aesop, the fable writer, was from here. This is uh, the setting of uh, the story of King Midas. It was a well-known and powerful city in antiquity, a very wealthy and prestigious city in its past. But by the time this letter had been written, most of the prestige had worn off, but it lived on powerfully in the hearts of those who lived there. The city itself was situated on a, on a well-defensible hill, really cliffs on three sides with only one point of access along a narrow, well-fortified neck of land stretching up from the south. And this defensible position had the effect of, of making the inhabitants of Sardis believe that they were invincible. And believing it, they became proud and complacent. No one could conquer them, ever. They were sure of it. 
And so in the 500s BC, when the Persians came from the east and encamped around the city to besiege it, they were unafraid. There was nothing the enemy could do, or at least that's what they thought. But there was one overlooked weakness, a slanting crack in the cliff face. And one night, 14 days into the siege, some of the Persians discovered this crack and under the cover of darkness, the entire army moved up the slope and into the city unopposed. There were no guards stationed anywhere because there was no fear that the city could be captured. And because they did not fear, they slept. And because they slept, they fell. This was a story that I am sure every single Sardinian or whatever they're called, they, they would be familiar with. And Jesus warns this church, wake up. Wake up or you're going to end up just like them. You, you can't coast along doing whatever seems right in your own eyes. You can't forget that you're engaged in spiritual warfare. You can't forget that there are enemies out there and enemies within. You can't forget the fear of the Lord. So wake up from your stupor and post a guard over your soul and over your church. That's the message of Christ to any church or any believer like this. Wake up and take things seriously or else Christ will come against you. Come like a, a thief at a time you do not anticipate. You won't know when He comes. You don't know how much time you have before He comes. Well, that's the atmosphere of the church at Sardis. They're sleeping when it comes to things spiritual. But as with the two previous churches, not everyone is so self-satisfied. There are some, we're told, who have not soiled their garments. And Jesus says three things to them. One, they're worthy. Two, they will be clothed in white. And their names, three, will not be blotted out of the book of life. There are some uh, who are worthy. You know, I was reading a kid's book the other day, and I came to a spot in the kid's book, and Jesus said, those people were not worthy of my invitation. And, and you know, my, my, uh, my reformed antennae kicked in, and I thought, not worthy. Of course they weren't worthy. No one is worthy. Why would they say that in this book? And so after the kids uh, went to bed, I picked up a Bible and opened it up to... Uh, the parable, and sure enough, Matthew 22, 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And so, and I had to ask, so what does it mean here, right? Well, they weren't worthy, and the reason they weren't worthy was because they rejected the invitation of Christ. Now, here Jesus says there are some who aren't worthy, and that's true, but it doesn't mean that they are worthy of salvation doesn't mean that they're worthy, therefore they earn their salvation. It means they have done what Christ has called them to do in places like Ephesians 4.1. They are living worthy of the calling, or in, in Philippians, live worthy of the gospel. I mean, you know what you're called to, to live as, as what you are, to be like Christ because you are in Christ. And those who are belonging to Christ live worthy of Christ. We say, well, what's that mean? It means that though we are not like Jesus, what does it mean to live worthy of your calling? It means that though we are not like Jesus, we strive to be like Jesus and we settle for nothing less than that. 
You know, sometimes a Christian will sin or do something wrong. They know it's something they shouldn't do. And then they'll say, well, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. Well, that's true. But don't use him as an excuse. And no, you're not like Jesus, but that doesn't excuse sin or make it any better. It actually makes it worse because now you're using the name of the Lord to justify your sinning against Him. Now, if you're a Christian, Christ-likeness is the goal. It's the goal that one day will be realized. And no, you are not like Him today, but He is in you. He is transforming you, and He commands you to be like Him. And one day you really will be like Him, sinless as He is. You'll never sin again. But we are called to begin to put this into practice today. And when you sin, because you aren't always like Him, the last thing you should be thinking about are excuses and justifications. Think about repentance. And think about striving for holiness. That's living worthy of the Gospel. A person living worthy of the gospel says, I know I don't deserve it, but I'm going to make every effort to live as though I am. Second promise is to the one who overcomes, you will receive white robes that cannot be defiled. What a promise to those who are suffering with the foolishness being carried out in the name of Christ. They're seeing what's happening around them. They're seeing all the silliness. They're seeing the deadness. And they wonder, how much of this is rubbing off on me? I mean, it's only natural, right? If you have clothes that you want to keep clean and you're walking through a place where there's a lot of mud or there's a lot of dirt, you're always a little worried that it's going to get on you, right? Maybe you've got an important place you're, uh, you're on your way to and you see a puddle. Maybe most days you'd walk through it, you're going to walk around it. You don't want to get dirty. Well, the Lord speaks to these people and He speaks to just this kind of thing. He tells them if they conquer... If they persevere in spite of everything that's happening around them, they will receive new robes, untainted and white, pure. And the point is, no matter what is happening around you in the world or especially in the church, God knows those who are His. He knows those who are striving for holiness. He knows those who are making every effort to live worthy of their calling. He knows you and, and He sees your sin and he knows if it grieves you if you make excuses for it he knows if you're aiming to overcome and so if you're here this morning and you want to be like jesus and you you hate your sin and you wish more of it could be put to death and you're grieved about it and you're praying over it and you say lord i just don't want to be influenced by all of this garbage that's happening around me consider matthew 5 6 blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied you know, the only way you can hunger for food is if you don't have food. And the only way you can be thirsty is if you don't have anything to drink. And the only way you can hunger and thirst for righteousness is by an acute awareness of how little of it you actually have. And if that's you, keep pressing on and Christ will give you white robes of righteousness that no one can tarnish. He will give you a heart that will never sin again and a, and a body and a spirit that are united in their holiness and their Christ-likeness that you will never be tempted again and if sin is paraded the sin that so entangles you today were it paraded before you then not only would it not tempt you it would repulse you and you'll live in a world forever with the people who never sin in a world unstained by sin and there will be nothing like it for those who conquer. And lastly, He will not blot their names out of the book of life. 
This is a curse from Psalm 69. It's an imprecatory psalm, a, a psalm of David asking that God would blot the names of his enemies out of the book of life. And maybe some in Sardis were hearing this. You know, Jews in the ancient world, they would pray for Christians. And one of the prayers would be Psalm 69. Lord, blot their names out of the book of life. And there could be something like this happening here. But it, it speaks to a fear of those who are faithful. They've seen others fall away. They'd seen others die, abandon Christ and perish. They had seen others who, by all appearance, their names were blotted out of the book of life. They walked with Christ for a little while and fell away. How do they know that this won't happen to them? Jesus says, do you know how you can tell? Press on, overcome, and it won't. Those who endure to the end will be saved. And so he doesn't tell us in the moment but he tells us what it looks like. Press on till the end, and those who do, whoever does, their names will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Now, this does not mean that other names can be blotted out. You know, sometimes this verse is taken that way, right? You better not get your name blotted out of the book of life. You better not lose your salvation. But that's not what this verse says. All it says is that God will not do this. There isn't loss of salvation here. There's not loss of salvation here. There is assurance of salvation here. You know, I was, uh, I was going out one day, and my youngest son, he was terrified that I was going to leave him behind. And I told him, come on, I won't leave you. I'm not going to leave without you. Now, when I said that, I did not mean, if you don't hurry up, I'm going to leave you. It's not what I meant. What I meant was, Come on, because I'm not going to leave you. And that's what's happening here. He will never blot their names out. It's a reassurance, not a threat. They are secure in the Lamb's book of life, a book that we'll actually see again four times in the book of Revelation. But to the point, Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, following Him, He is giving you assurance that nothing can snatch you out of His hands and He Himself will never blot you out of the Lamb's book of life. And what will He do? He will confess your name before His Father in heaven. He won't be ashamed of you. He will welcome you and bring you into the heavenly places and say, Father, here He is, here she is. Isn't that... Isn't that have you ever been to a, with a group of Christians and they're acting in such a way and it just makes you ashamed? You just put your hand in your forehead and you say, I can't believe they're doing this. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I know some of you probably have. Jesus says, it's not going to rub off on you. I will confess your name before my Father and will not be ashamed of you. This is not unlike his message to the next church, the church at Philadelphia. They are enduring and Christ will confess them as his own. Revelation 7 or 3 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you keep my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you.
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And here is another church, the sixth church in this list of seven, that the Lord has nothing against. They are a faithful church paralleling Smyrna, except where in Smyrna, the, the situation they were facing was life and death at the hands of, of uh, false religion and the local government. These Christians are facing a kind of religious persecution. Not physical, but spiritual. There is a, a, a faithful church here in Philadelphia engaged in a spiritual war. And though we don't actually know a lot about Philadelphia, besides the name of the city means a city of brotherly love, what's obvious from the letter is that these believers are being harassed by Jews from the synagogue. Same as in Smyrna. But again, they're they're identified as a, a synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews but are not. And the accusation or the condemnation against the church is that God will reject them. Not from God, from the Jews. God will reject them, close the door on them, and they will not be let into the kingdom. It's not hard to imagine they heard prayers of Psalm 69 offered up loudly and publicly in pharisaical fashion directed towards them. The true church at Philadelphia is being condemned as a false, as unfaithful as those who are going to be locked out of eternal life. And they're being told this from those in the synagogue. And in this case, it's the Jews that are doing the persecution, but religious persecution of this sort is nothing new. None of the challenges these churches face are new. Even today, how often to those who hold to biblical fidelity, right? They believe the Bible. They believe uh, Christian morality. They believe in its exclusivity, the exclusivity of Christ. How often are Christians and churches who hold to these things beat down in debate and discredited publicly by those who say they are the true representatives of of God. It's, 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 it's not an intramural debate, but it's presented as one. I mean, how many times do you hear things like, well, if Christians really believed the Bible, and then something is misquoted or twisted? Or maybe a more concrete example, Gavin Newsom. Maybe some of you saw this this past week, but uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, clearly preparing for a bid at the presidency. He put up billboards all over the United States. And it was a promise on these billboards to women, if they needed an abortion, California would take care of them. They would provide transportation to the West Coast. They would pay for the abortion. They would cover any legal fees if there were any. And if that wasn't bad enough, there on the bottom left corner of the billboard was a verse. Mark 12, 31. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, what's the implication? That those who are opposing abortion, especially Christians, are actual hypocrites 
and they don't really love their neighbor. They aren't practicing what they preach. They aren't genuine. That's what the billboard is trying to convey. That's maybe more of uh, an extreme example, easy to disprove, but what about places that really look like churches and not West Coast government offices? What about when it's people who meet on Sunday mornings and sing the same songs and read from the same Bible and, and everything looks very similar? What happens when they're the ones discrediting the church? Well, before we can answer that, I, I think we have to answer first, is there even a place for challenging the authenticity of a group of Christians? Is there a place for saying, I, this is a false church? Well, yes, absolutely. In fact, that's what's been happening in the previous letters to the churches. The Lord was judging and sifting wheat from the chaff and warning, you are on the precipice of becoming false churches. He warns in Matthew 7 that not everyone who calls Him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be all kinds of people who call Jesus Lord and they're not going in. We're told over and over again in the Scriptures to watch out for those who will come in Christ's name and deceive many. They'll come with the Bible in their hand. They'll come with the name of Jesus on their mouth. And the whole purpose is to deceive and to destroy. So there is a call for discernment among believers between genuine and false Christianity. And so that begs the question. Well, how can you tell the difference? How can you tell the difference, especially when the two groups look very much alike? Well, you may find it encouraging to hear that it's almost always the same problem. Almost always. You have one group that believes the Bible and another does not. Almost every time. One group who believes that the Bible alone is their guide for life and they get their definitions from it. And then another group, maybe they say they believe the Bible, but when the Bible challenges them or when the Bible says something they don't like, they change it or they disregard it or they explain it away or maybe it's not the Bible alone and they add to it like the Book of Mormon or the traditions and encyclicals in Catholicism or they believe the Bible or they say they do but then they bring all of their worldview and their definitions to it and so if they don't believe in a literal creation then Genesis can't possibly teach a literal creation if they think women should be pastors then 1st Timothy and 1st Corinthians couldn't possibly have forbidden it and so on and so forth but what you have is one group submits to the scriptures and the other group tries to make the scriptures submit to them that's the bottom of it really and sometimes the opponents can be very persuasive and so Christ has a comforting word to those who are maybe doubting or questioning their understanding of the word Maybe they're doubting or questioning, what does God really require for me to be faithful? Well, he has a word of encouragement to those who are holding fast, even when they seem like they're the minority. He greets the church, this one, differently than he does the others. To all the other churches, he introduces himself with uh, emphasizing some revelation of himself from the first chapter. But here he doesn't do that. He introduces himself and stresses that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and that he is the God of the Old Testament, and he is the promised one to come. He is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, and the True One. These are both references to God, and he's reminding the Philadelphians that they are actually worshiping the one true God, that they're not illegitimate children like they've probably been hearing. And then he confirms this by quoting Isaiah 22, 22. 
And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now in its immediate context, Isaiah 22.22 is referring to the priest Eliakim, who will be given charge over the temple of God. Prior to him, Shebna was the priest, and he was preventing people from coming into worship. He was using the resources of the temple to make himself fat. He was abusing it, extorting it, and he was uh, going to be removed. Eliakim will take his place, and Eliakim will be established, and he will be righteous, and he will manage the temple rightly. And Jesus takes this and applies it to himself. And even though Isaiah 22, 22 was immediately fulfilled by Eliakim, the prophecy is ultimately about Christ Jesus. Now, how appropriate is it to quote this verse to a group who are being told, you don't belong to God and are going to be shut out of His presence? There's a group like Shebna who are using the resources God has given them to prevent God's people from worshiping, to cast doubt over them. And you get the picture. I mean, imagine a church whose doors were locked with guards out in front and there were all these people who just wanted to come in and worship. They're being kept away and beaten back. But then one day someone comes who holds the keys. And not only does he hold the keys, he holds the authority. And he takes hold of those who bars the door, bar the doors, and he throws them outside and opens up the door to his people and opens them in such a way that his people will never be excluded again. And that's the spiritual reality being conveyed. Jesus knows those who belong to him, and he will never lock the right person out or let the wrong person in. He knows them. He knows their works, and he tells them, yes, you're feeble. You know, maybe you can't win. You have small power. Maybe you can't win the debates. Maybe you don't seem very blessed. You don't have much influence in the city but you know what you have believed and you hold fast to it. Those believers, they don't give in. They may not be able to defend themselves as well as they'd like, but they know the truth and they believe the truth and they aren't going to compromise on it just because someone can argue a little better than them. They will not deny Christ. And because of that, four promises to them and for anyone who finds himself in a similar Situation One, he will vindicate them. Their accusers will bow down at the feet of God's people and confess we were wrong. God really does love these believers at Philadelphia. They were telling them things like God was against them and God would destroy them and God despised them. You know, maybe today they would say things like, well, you're part of a cult. And God's promise is not only that he loves this church, but he will make their enemies see it. The enemies will confess, God loved those I despised. And I think one of the reasons why they confess is this is not merely vindication. I think one of the reasons why the enemies confess this is because God shows them the truth, not in eternity, but in time. And by holding fast, this church conquers her enemies, not by besting them, not by outlasting them, but by their enemies being added to the kingdom of God. And those enemies become friends and becoming believers themselves see who God's people really were all along. The reason I say that is because of Isaiah 
45. There's a prophecy about the coming Savior, and in it, the nations, all the nations that warred against Israel, or, or true Israel, and by the way, this is a, what Jesus says is a, an allusion to Isaiah 45, which is why we're going there. All of the nations were warring against God's covenant people, Israel, or true Israel. And it says in that verse that they will actually come, stop fighting them, and come and join them. You find the same thing in chapter uh, 60 of Isaiah in verse 14. It says, The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing before you, and all of those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord. And what's ironic here is that this verse isn't being applied in Philadelphia to the Gentiles coming to Israel, but about the Jews coming to worship in this multi-ethnic church they despised the Christians and persecuted the Christians, then they became Christians and joined the Christians. And so if you're a believer and you're under this kind of thing, hold fast. God will vindicate you and He will do it either by judgment or by saving those who are your enemies. There's no other option for them. Salvation or judgment. And we can rejoice in both. Second, He will keep them from the hour of trial coming upon the whole world on those who dwell upon the earth. And here is a promise of preservation, and we don't know exactly how He will keep them. Maybe He'll keep them from falling away. Maybe He will keep them from excessive sorrow. The Bible speaks this way, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or maybe He will keep them from the physical difficulties that's coming. You know, we don't know exactly what He will protect them from. But one of the phrases introduced here that is actually very important throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. It's the first of five or six times it comes up, and you say, well, what's so special about that? It's not hard to understand. All those who dwell upon the earth mean those who live upon planet earth, right? How simple could it get? Well, actually, in the book of Revelation, the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it almost always, actually it always means in Revelation, those who do not believe in Jesus. That's how it's used. They are on earth as opposed to God's people who are at least always in the book of Revelation pictured as in heaven. Even here introduced in chapter 1, the churches are in a sense in the heavenly places. And so you have those who are on earth and those who are secure in heaven with Him. You have those who are heavenly-minded in the heavenly places, and you have those who are earthly-minded or worldly, and they're identified as those who dwell upon the earth. Earth is all they'll ever know. And the trouble spoken of here, now we don't know exactly what it is, but the promise is whatever is going to happen, it's aimed at those who are worldly. It's aimed at those who persecute the church. It's aimed at those who discredit Christ. It's aimed at those who dwell upon the earth and are worldly. But it's not going to happen to those who are faithful. And you might think, well, this is obviously talking about a rapture. And I don't think so. And I, I don't think so because I, I don't think the Bible says that there will be a rapture uh, at least in the sense of believers being plucked out of the world before a period of intense cataclysmic judgment. I believe what the church taught for the first 1860 years, that the rapture is simply the second coming of Christ where we're raised up to meet Him in the sky. And I think a lot of people who read the Bible carefully, they have a hard time finding proof for a secret rapture. 
Now, of course, we will go up to meet Christ in the air when he returns. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. But there really isn't any hint that this happens before a seven-year tribulation. John says in chapter 1, he is our partner in the tribulation already in the present. And we can talk more about that as the time comes. But uh, whatever happens, we do know that God's people are safe and secure. Even if they perish, they are safe and secure. Now quickly, the last two. They will be a pillars in the temple of their God. It's quite a message for those who are told they're not going to be going in at all. Not only will they go in, but they will be pillars. They will uphold the temple. And we know the temple is us, right? The temple is made of believers. And in their presence, uh, in their preservation and perseverance, it means the church will continue in Philadelphia. They will be made pillars. They will continue. It's amazing. If you walk through the woods uh, and old hunting grounds in this province, every now and then you'll find an old abandoned lodge. And you wouldn't know it because most of the lodge is rotted away, but there's a telltale sign that the place used to be a camp. And there's a, a tall, sometimes 20 feet tall, stone chimney standing straight up. And even though everything around it is gone, the chimney remains. God is telling these believers, if they just hold fast, they will be pillars of the church. And if everything around them is swept away, they will remain. Their church will remain. You know, you wonder sometimes, what is this church today going to look like a hundred years from now? I don't know. But I do know the only way for it to persevere, generation after generation, is for believers to continue to be faithful and not to be sucked away into so many of those things that tempt us or pull us. Number four, finally. Just like with the Smyrna Christians, he will give them a new name. He will own them, as weak as they were, and they will inherit the world in Christ. They'll be a part of that coming new creation that we'll see at the end of the book, a new creation where earth is uh, earth and heaven are no longer divided. And the heavenly city is established, not in far-off spiritual places, but here on earth. It'll be the most glorious day, the, the fullest measure of all of the promises of God. Now we know in part, but then we will know in full. And those who overcome will have a place in this new, eternal, sinless kingdom. And no one shall make them afraid again. That's the promise for those who persevere and overcome and conquer. You will inherit the heavenly Jerusalem. And in that city, no one will ever make you afraid again. You'll be secure in Christ. We have a great hope to look forward to as believers. And I pray that you're beginning to see why this book of Revelation is given to be a blessing to the church. Next week, we'll look at the church of Laodicea. Laodicea, a church that Christ has nothing good to say about and ends with a warning to all of, all of God's people. Watch out where you stand because the ground you're on may not be that secure. Bless next week in Laodicea. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and for your word. Lord, I pray for your church, for anyone, Lord, whatever it is they're facing, whatever your church is facing, Lord, you know better than we know. And I pray that you would strengthen your people. 
that they would hold fast and they would persevere even if they hear fine-sounding arguments that could lead them astray, that you would preserve them. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is tempted to coast or is, uh, life is, is, is full of activity and no vitality, that they would turn to you, Lord, in repentance, that they would strengthen what remains. Lord, that they would realize that they're on the verge of collapse and that they would shore up, Lord, their faith by going to you, Lord, in repentance and to your word and seeking you, Lord, for life. You are our life. Lord, you know the condition of every heart here. You see beyond the outward appearance into the inner man. You know us all thoroughly, better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would sift us and refine us and mold us, Lord, that we would be able to live worthy of our calling and honor you in all things. Help us to hold fast. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.